Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode of the show is supported by We Are One Composites. We Are One are making lovely carbon wheels in-house in Kamloops in Canada and I've been riding their products for about three years now. I currently have their Faction 29er wheels on my bike and I've been really impressed. They're light but they appear to be super strong and the ride feel is bang on. They're direct and they go where you point them but they don't let you know about every little obstacle in the trail by pinging you off them like some of the stiffer wheels out there do. They also have a really nice damped feel to them. If you want to get yourself a set of stock We Are One wheels or their depackaged bar and stem, then downtime listeners get 15% off for the whole of January using the code 2021 here we go. That's 2021 here we go, all one word, all lowercase. Head over to weareonecomposites.com now to check out their entire range of products. To make sure you get every episode as soon as it's available, all you need to do is subscribe. It's free and it's really easy to do with buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Or there's probably a subscribe button in whatever app you're using to listen to this episode. So go and hit subscribe right now. I've also got a little newsletter where I'll send you links to interesting bike related articles and videos, show you some of the products that I've been using and really rate and send you links to giveaways and competitions too. You can join the newsletter also when you're over on my subscribe page on the website. You'll get an email with a confirmation link that you will need to click in order to be able to receive the newsletter. So make sure you check your junk mail after you sign up for that. For the super dedicated downtime listener, we've got some lovely organic t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies available at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. I've made sure they're great quality, available worldwide, and they ship without any single-use plastics too, with all proceeds going to help improve the podcast. Make sure you give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast. There you can keep up with what's going on and it's a great place for us to interact. I love hearing from you lot and I really enjoy reading your comments and getting your thoughts on things. All right, this week on the show, I'm joined by Rich Hausman to talk about sponsorship in 2021. Rich is a former BMX world champion and had a successful mountain bike career in downhill and forecross before moving to work in athlete sponsorship, including being Aaron Gwynn's manager. We chat about his background and what it was like racing during those times. We cover how he met Aaron and what it's like being involved in the sponsorship of one of the highest value athletes in our sport. Then we get into the sponsorship environment in 2021. How important is social media? Is racing enough? How do influencers and YouTubers fit into the picture? And much, much more. So without further ado, here's Rich Hausman. Rich Hausman, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Things are going good. Appreciate you having me on. Oh, no, it's a pleasure, man. And um, we're going to be talking quite a bit about your your current day job on the world of athlete sponsorship in a bit. But before we do that, um, I want to find out a little bit more about you and your background. So let's wind the clock right back and tell us a little bit about how bikes came into your life in the first place, because you were into BMX at a, a really young age. Yeah, yeah it was. Um, yeah, I mean, bikes have been the life, I think, is the, always the good way I put it out there. But uh, um, four years old, got going in uh, BMX racing. Uh, my dad had owned like a motorcycle shop. And so we were always around and on two wheels. Um, and the plan was to definitely race motorcycles when I was a kid, but, uh, had ran into a couple guys just at a convenience store out in or up in the Northwest out here in the States. And, uh, they had leathers and jerseys on and we were like, are you guys going to the track? And they were like, no, we're going to a BMX track. And so that's basically how it's, we were like, we'll go check this out. And, uh, I rolled out there with my dad and, of course, I was bit by the, the bicycle bug right away and 
got going in, uh, in BMX racing and that progressed really, really fast. I was four years old. And by the time I was six years old, I had a full factory sponsorship from Hutch bicycles. And, uh, at the time I was the youngest. And I think that's still kind of on the books in BMX racing as the youngest factory racer at the time. I think that was in 84, but, uh, that really just kind of took a whole other turn as like the general, I want to go race my bicycle for fun type of a thing. I mean, I was on a team with, well, Hutch bicycles at the time was the brand. So they treated me like gold and, you know, I was their little mini superstar. And that basically led to BMX racing from the age of, you know, four until I was about 15 years old. And I had a chance to ride for great and and amazing brands through my BMX career, Hutch, Free Agent, Redline Bicycles, and uh, enjoyed that part of my life. But at the time when I was about 15, I, uh, you know, was burnt out on the BMX racing. I was just starting high school and kind of was, you know, maybe looking outside of the box a little bit. And so I actually jumped out of bicycles entirely in my high, like my sophomore year of high school. And uh, I was uh, dead set on basketball. I had started playing some basketball in like the junior high time and um, I was into it. I had never played team sports because I was always, you know, racing my bike. And so that was just new and cool and fun for me. And so I really went towards the basketball thing. And, and in high school, that's what I did. I was full on, you know, high school basketball. That's what I thought I was going to the NBA, you know, I had all the dreams <laughs> or at least college, you know, and, and I, I had success. I was, you know, captain of our team and I actually was a, a point guard, but I was six foot four. So I had some okay skills there, but, uh, during that whole time of racing and, and going through that, my little brother was racing with me and he actually never quit racing BMX. He was riding for the factory GT BMX program. And, uh, at that time, I think that was about 90, 1995. Um, I was a senior in high school, you know, not really looking to go into bikes at all, but he was still racing and the GT had given him some mountain bikes to try out. And, uh, at that point they were not very cool yet. Right. And, uh, but there was shocks on them, you know, and I was kind of looking at, like, man, that is cool, you know? And, uh, long story short, like I, I basically told my dad at that, my senior year, like, Hey, I might want to try this downhill stuff. And before I knew it, he had like gotten into our attic and found like six BMX frames from back in the day, took him to a bike shop and traded this bike shop for a downhill bike and uh, brought that back home. was like, here, you know, try it. <laughs> and uh, same thing happened. I went, I was living up in the Northwest and uh, racing up at a mountain up there called Mount Hood. And uh, I went to my first downhill race and was just so into it and literally was like in one race, like, this is what I want to do. And, uh, pretty much dropped the basketball thing and, and went full force into mountain bikes. And, um, my first year as a junior, I won our junior national championship here in the States, which was at Mammoth on the Kamikaze. And, uh, and I, that was my very first national. I had never been to anything, but I just drove down there with my brother and and uh, luckily, I mean, I was still like six foot three, 200 pounds, you know, as an 18 year old. So Kamikaze was my was probably my calling in the beginning, because I mean, I literally I think I won by like six seconds. And uh, from doing that, though, they 
the way the junior class worked is like all of a sudden now you're the junior national champion. And I got up on that podium and I remember sitting on the podium and they were like telling me that now I was going to go to Cairns, Australia for the 1996 world championships. And they were like, and we're going to pay your way. I had no idea. I mean, I was just sitting up there like, sweet, won a race. Like, you know, (laughs) the next thing I know, they're like, okay, you know, and whatever month you're shipping you off to Australia. And so literally my second national ever was the world's in 96 in Cairns, Australia. So I showed up there pretty green. Like, again, my brother made the team too. So, um, you know, we were over there together with the team and everything, but that was like, of course, like a big eye opener for me. Um, you know, since only racing the mammoth national, that was my recollection of what a national was. And so getting out there, I mean, it was, it was an eye opener and, and I, uh, I went through all the motions. I mean, I, I thought, you know, everything was going good. I might've practiced a little hard. I always remember that like tumbling down the hill the whole first part of the week and just trying too hard. But uh, I actually got sixth at the world's that year and was the top American. And, um, that, you know, got me noticed. And, and basically from that race, I signed with uh Rotec bikes, um, on the mountain biking side. And, that like led into, you know, having that pro downhill team career thing. And, you know, basically that started my mountain bike career and, uh, went on for, gosh, what was it? I mean, I guess I was in the scene and on the scene for about 15 years. Right. Um, and had success, right. I had some, uh, a couple national championships here on the four cross side in the States and never really broke into the top of the the echelon on the downhill side, but certainly had a few competitive years. Probably the years that I was riding for Tomac was the years I was going for the downhill side. But, um, you know, it seemed like four cross and slalom was a little bit more my, uh, my expertise, if you want to call it that from my BMX days. So, you know, that's kind of towards the end of my career, I focused a lot on the four cross and slalom stuff. And I think that probably, you know, lengthened my career a little bit too. So, um, yeah, I mean, without, not a lot of detail on the mountain biking side for sure, but I was still fortunate to ride for some excellent brands through my mountain biking career too. So, yeah. What was it like back then? Cause you'd have been in four cross, you'd have been coming up against riders like Dave Cullinan, Brian Lopes, sure. Eric Carter, like some, some big yeah. names. What was it like racing those guys? You know, what was funny is see, I knew all those guys from when I was a six, seven, eight year old kid. I mean, I went to every national, every BMX national with every one of those guys you just named King, well, Carter was my brother-in-law. So of course I was with him, but, um, Cully Lopes boots, all those guys. And, and to be honest, when I first started, it was not four cross, it was dual slalom for sure. And those guys were, had broken into dual slalom and, you know, were already dominating, um, by the time I got into it. Um, but it was, uh, it was, it was definitely one of those when I say end of my career is that it was a pain in the ass to have to race those guys <laughs> all my career. I still tell Lopes that we're still really close. And I mean, Carter's my, my brother-in-law, so we're close, but those two together, I mean, having to race those guys, my entire mountain bike career, it was not easy. And, you know, I have a few little tally marks of the times I beat those guys, but predominantly, you know, I'd make it into the round of four or eight and then go up against one of those guys, you know, and uh, they'd show me the ropes. But uh, the thing that I thought was cool about, well, not cool, but I thought 
we had some success as BMX racers in slalom out here in the States because I'm not sure if everybody knows this, but early on, you did not practice slalom before the race. Okay. So you literally got to walk the course, you know, put your foot in the dirt and check the dirt and look at the course. But your first run was your qualifying run. And you did that on both sides. So I always thought that just the simplicity of like sprinting your bike and like getting your bike up to speed and just having like a base skill. I really think that's why BMX people dominated so quick in the sport because it just seemed like, you know, we would pick it up so fast. And some of the mountain bike specific guys, they, they'd be fast towards the end of the rounds. But anyways, that's what I got going quickly with. And it, I think I learned a lot having to chase those legends around early on. And then the sport transitioned a bit. Um, and I think Eric Carter is responsible for a lot of that, the shift to four cross. Um, and I was right there with it. Um, and it became a, a, a different discipline for me, but literally it was, you know, kind of going back to the old school where I was used to rubbing elbows with guys down the track. And I was not used to racing, you know, would have ended up being kind of like my heroes going into that, but I soon and quickly, you know, was in the mix and, you know, I loved the four cross event, but, uh, I was always a bigger fan of the slalom racing myself. Okay. Yeah. And if, I mean, watching the four cross as a kid growing up, you know, watching it from home on TV, it looked like it was pretty cutthroat racing. Like it, it, it looked was. pretty rough. Yeah. Was it like that on track? It was. Yeah. I mean, I, I was fortunate because I was a bigger guy, you know? And so I actually, I, I enjoyed the contact because, you know, it was like, you know, then I knew I was close to somebody and it was going to be a race, <laughs> but um, the forecast was rough. And, you know, I think, Unfortunately, you know, the bulk of the race courses that we were on really just led us to blocking insides all the way down the track. And so in order to get around someone, you you just had to smash into them. And that that was pretty rough. Not near as rough as uh, what they used to call duel, though. I don't know if you remember that, but <laughs> World Cup used to have two of us on the course at the same time. And that was re- that was borderline ridiculous. I mean, there was guys jumping off their bikes and, you know, grabbing you and all kinds of crazy stuff. So it didn't last very long. But uh, yeah, so the the times when the courses were were great and you could make passes from fourth into second and that, I mean, that was super, super fun. And there was certainly a couple of those types of courses throughout my career, but it always felt like most of the time it was a race to the first turn and then who could block all the way down. So Slalom seemed to be a little more fun that way because you could just use your own skills all the way top to bottom. Yeah, fair play. And it, it, that was the era when a lot of riders would race downhill and four cross, and you were one of those. Mm-hmm. It must have Definitely. been a pretty hectic schedule. Like, I mean, some some riders will complain about how busy the current downhill schedule can be, but right. four cross in as well, right? Yeah, you know, it's funny. During the time, like back in that part of my career, I did not think of it that way. Um, I remember there was a few like uh, in the paddock or whatever, you know, you'd hear about riders that do do both. And, you know, maybe they were a little extra valuable guys like Cedric Gracia and and then Carter and Lopes. And, you know, so I was just doing it because that's what it was. And I, I was able to do that. And it wasn't until after my career and then kind of towards the end when I was just focusing on four cross, I realized how much of a commitment both of those disciplines were. And then maybe more importantly, like maybe I was splitting myself up a little bit too much, but 
I made the choice later on in my career to definitely focus on four cross. So maybe that helped me a little bit. Yeah. And and you were racing in the days of uh, characters like Sean Palmer, Steve Peter, yeah. Warner. You must right. have had to know how to party too, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think I was pretty dang good on that side too, actually. And, <laughs> uh, I could mix it up with all those boys and, and hold my own, but uh yeah, that was a different time and place back then. And we all know of those days and we all still talk about them um, and how fun they are. But man, haven't times changed, right? So Yeah, much more serious sport these days in that respect, I guess. Yeah, do you, I agree. Do you remember any particularly uh, good after parties? Where, where was good <laughs> for an after party? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to mirror, I think, what a lot of people have said over the years. But Mount St. Anne was always a great time. Um, they did a good job about planning parties and making it a thing. But I tell you what, it didn't really matter what town or what country or what mountain we were on. Um, we definitely always made it a party. So uh, I can't remember one just because I almost remember every single time that it was just fun and we were having a great time. So Good stuff. And I think it was around kind of 2004 when you started working for what was then Sponsor House, now hookit.com. Correct. What was it that made you think about moving away from racing as being your, mm. your full-time like main gig? Yeah, good question. And um, yeah, it was at that time and um, a year prior to 2004, um, the owners of, at that time, it was called sponsorhouse.com um, had come out to a mountain bike national, I think it was in park city or something like that out here in, in the States. And, um, I ran into those guys and, uh, it was, it was at the after party. And, uh, <laughs> I remember, you know, sitting up belly up at the bar and, and Scott Tilton, our, our founder and owner was, you know, basically <clears throat> I had, and I didn't know it Well, I knew it, but I didn't re remember. I had set sponsor house an email um, looking and I must've been on the internet and I was trying to, you know, <laughs> look for sponsors, blah, blah, blah. And I had run across sponsor house and I realized that they hadn't had mountain bikes yet on there. It was just for motocross. And, uh, I had just put an email and then it's like, Hey, you guys should do mountain bikes. And my name's Rich Hausman. And, you know, just threw it in there and he actually saved it and sought me out at the national. And he was looking to add mountain bikes to this site. And, uh, at that point or whatever, I still had a sponsor. I forget exactly where it was at the time, but as far as sponsors, but long story short, I had lost my sponsor at the end of the season and he called me again and said, Hey, I'm moving to San Diego. They were up in the Northeast and New York area and we're going to start this site and we want you to start mountain bikes with us. And I thought about it. It was, you know, a regular desk job and like it was that move from what I would have considered a full-time racer to a job. And I just went for it. Um, I was between, you know, I was toward the end of my career, I would call it, but also I needed stability, you know, and I needed uh, a steady check and food on my table. So I just went for it. And uh, the funny thing is, is at that point, I was, you know, definitely going for the, the, the pro mountain biking career and doing everything I could to win. And I was actually living with Eric Carter at the time. And uh, I took this full-time job and I think I struggled for a solid two years of, you know, cause I was actually still trying to race and right. I was trying to train and I was trying to work and, 
you know, I didn't really have an identity at that point. In fact, when I'd go to the race, I'd felt like, oh man, you know, everyone's been training. I'm going to get smoked. Right. And then I'd go back to work and be like, man, I was out training and doing my riding. I'm behind on my work, you know? And I was just like in flux for a while. But once I settled in and and actually started working, getting normal check, but then still going to the nationals, I started like setting up for sponsor house, you know, putting a 10 by 10 up at the nationals and really just doing both. It wasn't until then I actually then won my national championship Norba title for four cross. And two years later in 2008, I won the single day national championship all while having a full time job. So, well, and also you were the team manager for Yeti Fox as well, right? Was, so you, you kind of had yeah. two jobs. I did. Yeah. And so I always laugh about that because, I mean, I tried my hardest, you know, up until I had a full-time job and I was, I mean, you know, doing everything I thought possible to be the best. And it wasn't until I actually got a job that I won anything. So maybe it was because I was, you know, out there and a little more relaxed and not racing for a roof over my head kind of a scenario. Um, I don't know what it was, but that's definitely a little bit backwards for my career. Yeah. Strange that, isn't it? That it's your biggest successes, I guess, kind of came when you had less time to focus on the riding. For sure. Yeah. It's strange. But again, I, I had been racing for so long and I've, I had one direction for so long. It's, it's when I got my job and I knew that I had to split my time I don't know if that was what it was. It was just reorganizing or, you know, I'm certainly not complaining about it, but I do think it's a little bit odd that that's when I decided to win some, some titles after having a full-time gig. So do you think uh, it took the pressure off a bit? Cause you know, you had, you had money yeah, coming in from the day. Job. Yeah, I know it did. I mean, I was never making that much money anyways. Uh, you know, as far as a career goes and, Luckily, I lived with my brother-in-law, Eric Carter, and my sister, and, you know, I could probably be two days late on rent and things like that. But um, once I had a steady job, I know that what you just mentioned there, just that comfortability and knowing that when I got home, I'd, you know, have a check in the mail kind of a thing. It uh, it allowed me to go to a race and just race. And um, that I think that's part of it anyways. Um, yeah. Cause yeah, I was out there and it felt like every time I was at a national, it was like I was on vacation, you know, <laughs> and it was so nice to be away from the desk and, you know, all the normal stuff, I guess a person with a full-time job would be thinking sitting in the middle of the mountains. Right. So, yeah. um, but yeah, it was great. Cool. Before, before we go much further, just give us like a brief explanation of what hook it does just so that people understand, like, and get mm-hmm. the context there. Oof. Big question. Um, <laughs> things have changed a lot in the last five years at the at the company, but um, the backbone and, and premise of Hook It, what used to be known as Sponsor House, same owners, same people behind it all the way through, um, was connecting athletes and brands digitally in the context of brand support. Um, initially, the the sweet spot was for that grassroots athlete, the athlete looking for a you know a break on pricing. They want to send their resume in and they want to get a quick answer. That was the really the software and the way the tools work. Brands could both read, respond and, you know, manage their ambassador programs through the system we've built. And that pretty much took on a life of its own all the way through when I got on board. Um, I'm certain that I brought 
you know, brands and companies that I was either connected to or had relationships with. And the cycling side has has grown on Hook It alongside our motocross and board sports as well. But up about till I'm going to guess, I'm going to just say safely six years ago, uh, Hook It started to heavily immerse themselves in social media data and social media value, but all under and around sponsorship. So two years ago, they they actually handed myself personally the keys to the legacy business, which was, you know, what I had mentioned were grassroots support, but I mean, actually any level of support. And we still have, you know, about 40 brands using our software and, and supporting athletes through it. And I manage that side of the business for Hook It. And then um, the other side of the business is, like I mentioned, supremely focused on social media data, working with, you know, the biggest of the big brands out there and crunching sponsorship campaign, you know, content and everything included and, and bringing that data back to the brand. So, um, we're like simultaneously kind of going along a path. And I noticed that there is connections from social media to sponsorship to sales. Um, putting those all together right now is a bit of a murky water, but uh, things are starting to sharpen up for us. And that's basically where Hook It is right now. So um, there's a lot going on. I can give you that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And we, yeah, we're going to dig into into some yeah. of that in a bit. Let's talk a little bit about. I mentioned that you were at one point you were the team manager for Yeti mm-hmm. Fox, and um, I think it was at that point that you met a young ginger-haired lad uh, on a mountain who you thought might be quite fast. Yeah, right, right. I did. Yeah, I um, I was racing, you know, on the Yeti side and, and doing my thing there. And then I, I mentioned I started transitioning away a little bit from the downhill. And they actually asked me to uh, kind of assume a, a, a racer manager role where I would help out the domestic side. So everything in the States on the team manager role and then still race four across. And then, uh, you know, the, the World Cup team was at, at that time, I believe Damian Smith was still going over and doing the World Cup stuff. But they also said at that time, kind of my first year of making that jump was we'd like you to create like a regional Yeti team out of Southern California and you pick the two riders uh, or, you know, you can have two riders. We'll give them a jersey and a bike, just super simple stuff. But I was going to be like the the mentor of the program kind of a thing. And uh, of course, we were racing out there at Fontana. And um, at the time, uh, I believe Aaron had already done one race on a borrowed bike and we didn't like we as pros i mean it was myself eric carter i can't remember everybody but there was probably a good six or seven pros out there and i can actually remember i think aaron got second in the pro class (laughs) on that race but like i remember coming down and like whatever we 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 knew he got second but we all kind of like brushed it off like ah timing was messed up or something who knows that like we didn't really think anything of it and then then i got the word about this you know regional program and then we go to this next race and aaron's there again on a different bike same kind of get up in his jean shorts and flannel or something right races the pro class i think he got third that race and it was like kind of like you know stars align i mean i remember being under my pit 
looking over, seeing Aaron over there with his mom and dad. And I literally just like put my hat on and walked over to him and was like, what's up? You know, who are you? How the hell did you get, you know? And he just had this like wide eyed look. He doesn't say much anyways. Right. So he was just kind of like, Hey, I like, I think I want to race mountain bikes and kind of had this really aloof look to him. And I was like, well, how about riding a Yeti and I'll give you a Jersey. And he just was like, sure. You know, and that's how it went. And uh, I also had picked up another kid alongside of him. Um, his name's Kevin Aiello. I don't know if you've ever heard of his name, but um, those were my two kids from the SoCal region. And I mean, of course, it took on a whole nother gear for sure after we connected. But that's how it began. And, you know, I can I can remember early on, it was definitely more of a mentor type thing where you know, Chris Conroy would send us as a team out to a big, you know, team camp. And then so like I would be the mentor of that program. And then we had a Colorado guy with with Ross Milan. And so that's how things got going. That's for sure. And I mean, I know his story has been told, uh, but I certainly was on the side kind of looking out from him, you know, and wow, what a what a crazy hurricane of stuff that's happened since then. Um, yeah, wild ride. We, and you wild. ended up being being Aaron's manager for quite a while, yeah? I did, yeah. I mean, that became more because, of course, I was just, you know, I was a bit of a mentor early and kind of showing him the ropes. But, I mean, after he got ninth at St. Anne on that first race, um, the his phone just lit up, right? And the, I was the, I think, you know, one of the first guys that was there to be like, hey, I'll I'll help you, you know, I'll... I'll take that call or I'll read that email or I'll check that contract out for you. Cause I had had some experience by no means was that, you know, what I thought I wanted to do though, as a job, um, I was there just to help. So in that context though, and take 10 years in his career, um, I was his manager and looking at contracts up until his YT deal. Mm-hmm. Um, he, at that time, said, Hey, you know, I, I kind of like to take this over on my own, which was actually great timing for me. I mean, it was heavy work. Um, and I was well into it by then, but, uh, he, he definitely wanted to kind of go on his own direction as far as, you know, doing his own deals around that time. And then I moved to a different role for him, which was mainly more of like still consulting with it when it came down to like social media stuff, if he had questions or, and again, I still was seeing and talking contract stuff, but he was making all the big decisions. And I was actually handling more of the money side where Mm -hmm. I was helping him invoice and uh, (laughs) making sure checks landed in the bank and stuff like that. And that's actually what I did all the way up until uh, this year. And I think this year I'm going to finally kind of move away from the business relationship with him and just go straight into the bros and the buddies and uh, just be a fan and root for him. I mean, that's, he's got his ducks in a row. Right. And, uh, I'm, I'm stoked with what, uh, I had to do with his program up until this point. And ultimately I think I'll always be involved somewhere or another. Right. So, yeah, definitely. That's cool, man. And I'm guessing your work with hook it kind of helped you understand what a rider like Aaron was worth, right. And help them get the, the, yeah. the, the deals that they deserve, I suppose. I think, um, although I don't think it helped me like, um, know the worth i think what was going on was aaron was r- literally carving out his own 
little niche every single time we saw an agreement. And so I think of us going into that together and then I had people I could lean on. I mean, I had ridden for guys like John Tomac. My brother-in-law was Eric Carter. You know, I had attorney friends. And so I think we had a good group of people that would, uh, you know, sort of learn as we were going. And we were, <laughs> we were also immersed in some pretty sketchy situations when he was switching from, you know, Trek to specialized and specialized out. I mean, we clearly, I think there's probably a few times where we could have made some better decisions publicly. Um, and, you know, you always go back and think about how you could do it different. But uh, I also know there were some very high pressure situations that um, I'm proud of because we learned from them, you know. And um, ultimately, uh, Aaron went on to almost every program he's been on and had success, you know, and showed value. And ultimately, I think he did did the brands right, you know. So uh, I learned a lot. And I guess I, I've said this now as I've maybe sunsetted that side of my life is that I learned that I did not want to be a manager or agent. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? You know, for me personally, um, and I don't know if this is going to sound weird, but I was too good of friends with Aaron okay. to, to listen to the flack and the negative side. Um, Aaron was at such a high expectation level that you know, third place sucked for him. Yeah. And guess who gets the call when he gets third? Not Aaron. Right. And mm -hmm. I'm not complaining about that, but I'm just saying it's tough to hear when like your best friend is out there risking his life for a third at a world cup and a brand is saying, ah, we might've made the wrong decision here. You know, we should uh, rework this deal next year. And like, it's, it was just really like a, a, a emotional roller coaster for me. And I, I, although I was there to be and have his back and say, I was just almost like tired of listening to both sides, you know, and, and it's a lot of pressure to take from an agent side. But the funniest part of it is, is the writer, honestly, if they have an agent, a lot of times they don't hear any of that. And maybe they wouldn't need to, right? But it was a, it was a strange role for me to have such a like personal relationship with Aaron and then have to handle that business talk. It was, uh, it was just maybe not my calling. You know, I, I, I loved what I was doing at hook it and really saw my future there. And so maybe I was fortunate to be able to learn that through the process. Right. Um, but the longer I worked with Aaron, I would tell you like the less role I had each year as he made more money. So it was like, I think he was armed and ready to basically, you know, take on the the job of, on himself. And he's done a great job, obviously. Um, and I feel proud of, you know, of the little things that I've helped him along the way. So, yeah, definitely. Do you think those sort of conversations uh, between brands and either agents, managers or the athlete directly are happening kind of throughout the field? Or do you think you saw... Uh, a kind of almost intensified version of it because you're working with someone who is at the very top and yeah. as a result is demanding, you know, yeah. more money from the brands. That's a great question. Um, I found that no, not, not, not the majority of the writers have, you know, a, a second voice calling in and, and doing it. And those that do um, it, it seemed like there was a point where, and I guess I was only fortunate enough to to be behind Aaron's program, but 
<clears throat> there almost felt like it, it needed to be someone besides Aaron initially to kind of get the business talk going and get kind of everyone on the same page. Um, I thought it was a role that I played, you know, and, and to, to sort of get it off the ground. But I also found that um, ultimately at some point, the brand loves to talk to the rider mm -hmm. and the rider a lot of times if says or you know is the right timing can get the deal done and so that was kind of our basically uh i thought that was more of our rotation where oftentimes aaron was the one on the phone talking to the brand telling the brand he's going to win a championship for him you know and that he was going <laughs> to you know do his thing and i think it was powerful when he turned around and did it right and that was yeah. less of me trying to wave his big flag which i can do it you know I can go in any room and be, Aaron's going to be the champ. But it was a little different when Aaron's across the table telling you that, you know, and um, I was just there to back him up and make sure everything went smooth. Cool. While we're on the topic of Aaron, obviously he's had a few tough years. Do you mm -hmm. think we'll see him back on the top when we, uh, when we get racing again? Good question. Um, I do. Uh, I, I believe a hundred percent in him. Um, I thought I thought it was interesting in the last couple of years, and that's just being on my side. It's just how quickly that question comes up. You know, is he going to come back? Yeah. Can he do it? And you know, my question is always a big, emphatic, one hundred percent yes. And I always say, prove me wrong. You know, I mean, okay, he's had a bad year or he's had a few bad races, but do I think he could make it to the top again? And it's yes. Um, he's got to go do it though, right? And there's a lot of challenges in between there. And, you know, he's at what I would consider now on the the, the tail end of the career, right? And uh, he's got a big job ahead of him. But the amount of effort that he puts in and, and really just like how he goes about preparing, it's not going to be because he wasn't prepared. So um, as far as me thinking he can, I, I think he can. Yes. Yeah. I, I do too. And, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. Cool. I want to, I want to talk more about the sponsorship side of things. Cause I think okay. there's a lot of people out there that are interested in that and can, and, and can maybe benefit from it. But before we go too far, maybe we should define kind of how you see sponsorship. Cause I think for a lot of people, certainly younger riders, maybe that haven't been exposed to the world of the business in inverted commas just yet, Mm -hmm. You know, they think it's basically just getting given kit or money or both mm -hmm. because they're quick and they might do well in racing. But talk yeah. a bit more about how you see that sponsorship relationship. Yeah, uh, heavy subject for sure. I mean, um, I know the world of sponsorship has changed. Um, I thought like, I mean, to almost expound on what you mentioned, the kid that is quick and can go to a race and win, you know, is no longer just the main value at an event um i would say that these days the brands are looking for of course the same thing they've always looked for you know fast racers who can potentially win but they're certainly also looking for that uh marketability and sponsorable kid or rider that can sell them product straight up and i know the fundamentals have probably remain the same when it gets right down to support and why um, I just know the world of digital and the world of social media and, and adding that to these programs has probably been the biggest change. Um, I was 
or I am fortunate enough to still talk and, and mix it up with some of our older veterans of the sport, the the Carters and the Lopes here from the States. And it's in, it's been pretty interesting to kind of go and transition with them over from the print to digital world. And in my mind and kind of how I am viewing this going forward is I try to make both like print and digital the same in my mind in a way that says like, I'm, I'm going to just use one example because I've done it a bunch of times, but you know, back in the day we would get the call and we need to go do a, like a magazine photo shoot. Right. And we would have a photographer and we would probably clean our bike and, you know, make sure our clothes are dialed and show up at this photo shoot looking pro mm -hmm. to me. That is the same thing as waking up this morning saying, Hmm, I'm sponsored by new proof bikes. Oh, that's right. I got a super cool photo two weeks ago. Okay. I need to put a post together. Right. To me, that's the same framework. It's the same idea. And I've just kind of felt like often we are quickly saying, Oh, stuff is so much different and so, you know, new and all this stuff. And I, I, I use some examples where I'm like, you know, talking to uh, Brian Lopes on the other side of the phone and I'm like, yeah, but you know, you wouldn't go on Instagram and, you know, have half your sticker peeled off your bike and post that photo. Right. And like you wouldn't, your Jersey wouldn't be untucked, uh, you know, and simple stuff like, is that Shimano logo visible on that post that you're making right now? And early on, I mean, years and years ago, I had people asking me why, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, go grab a magazine and go find a Shimano ad and show me the blurry Shimano logo on it, please. <laughs> like, yeah. just show me. And, and you don't see that, right? I mean, come on. That's not what you do. So Hook It is looking at things like logo clarity on photos and videos of athletes. And then showing Nike where and when that swoosh was visible and clear and how many interactions that post got. So that Nike makes decisions on the athletes and which content and how they produce it. So stuff doesn't seem so far-fetched and different for me. Although, you know, I know by just simply saying that we've added social media to the to the to the plate of these athletes, that's not saying something is little, you know. I know that there's a job included there, but for my sake, I, I try to keep things as sort of simple as I can uh, because we also take in a lot of feedback, you know, from the brands and, you know, what, what we are showing the brands as far as value goes on social, um, they're able to actually see the data and make decisions based off data now. And um, I, I don't know, I, I believe data these days, even though it's a bit of a nerdy word. Um, I, uh, I'm a fan of it because what I've noticed is now brands making decisions based off hook it data, they're sticking around and then showing more increased revenue, showing more social media interactions and engagement. And so if that's what's happening, I think we're doing something right. So, yeah. Do you, do you think it's maybe feels different because in the older days with like photo shoots and stuff, that was kind of coming to you like, the magazine true, would call true. and the team would call and say, you need to be here. Whereas now it's in your hands, right? You it's decide totally... when you make a post, you decide yeah. whether you have a YouTube channel and what you put on there. So maybe the, the ownership has changed a little bit. 
I think you're right. Um, but I also know that like, you know, many of my contracts early on in my mountain bike career had photo bonus clauses in them, meaning okay. that like I would have known that if I could go try to get a quarter page color, you know, that was going to be 500 bucks. And so granted, you know, I know if you were good enough and you're famous enough, certainly the magazines are going to call you, but I'm guessing that, you know, there was, there were some athletes out there calling up magazines, you know, and trying to get into them and trying to do their thing, which might be loosely affiliated to what you're saying, as far as waking up in the morning and having to do it on your own. Um, I guess the the part that I'm, you know, ears to the ground and, and actually still or actually seeing is nowadays, you know, those photo bonuses that were in our contracts, are now social media clauses and they are saying things like you have to post x number of times a week or month um what's soon coming though is uh and i don't want to get too far into it i don't know how detailed you want to be but you know when we look out there on athlete post today um there may be a you know let's just use aaron gwynn right he goes out and does a post and it has intense cycles on it maybe but maybe it also has mm -hmm. six other sponsors. Uh, the five other sponsors, or maybe consider the four other ones that lay behind, and I'm talking physically looking at the post. So if he lists six app mentions, pretty much from the third one on, does not get clicked. So okay. what we're finding here at Hookit is the word we're using or the label that we're calling it is a promoted post which simply means only one or maybe two sponsors in the post itself. Mm -hmm. And then the brands negotiate that though. So instead of saying in Aaron's contract, you need to post for us, you know, two times a month on Instagram, it would say something like, Aaron, you need to do six promoted posts this year with just our brand. And the value though is exponentially higher for those promoted posts. Uh, we've got the data to show you that after like the third hashtag or definitely after like the second app mention, nothing gets clicked. No right. one scrolls, no one clicks the more button, you know, even in better, I know you've seen this, but you know how athletes are doing or anyone where they do their posts and then they go dot, dot, dot. And then this rack of hashtags at the bottom, mm -hmm. right? That's a big no-no. No one clicks those. No one scrolls, no one clicks more. And no, I don't mean no one, right? But the general data shows us it just doesn't happen. So like, you know, we're, we're out there really promoting things like you have to use hashtags and app mentions early in your content and text just for the chance that someone's gonna click it. Um, so I guess with the hashtag side of things, I guess there's two ways if I understand yeah. it right, there's kind of two ways they're used. So there's like hashtags uh, as a search term. So people might find your post because it has that hashtag. Whereas what you're talking about is kind of it going the other direction. So people finding a product or a brand by kicking, clicking through from a hashtag. Is that correct? Yeah. That right? Yeah. There's definitely two sides of that because I think generally what I've heard anyways is, you know, I'm just talking about don't even put athlete into the equation. Mm -hmm. It would be a, a a strategy on your social post to go on there and, you know, make a post and then basically puke out 15 hashtags, hashtag MTB, hashtag mountain bike. And then 
there's the chance, right? Someone might've clicked that hashtag in another post and then seen your content, your profile on that search page. But I actually consider every hashtag a search term. Okay. So that's just the way I view it. But then what you mentioned about a branded hashtag, right? That you clicked on that might see a product. That is certainly what we focus on here at Hook It and like what we mean that, you know, I don't mean that uh, some random person could hit MTB on Aaron's post, right? We just don't account for that as the value as much as we value when Aaron does, you know, hashtag, uh, I'm just going to like an intense taser, mm -hmm. right? That particular hashtag and value and fact that it could probably have a chance of selling an intense taser bike is where we put our focus and kind of where we're, where we're educating folks that, you know, we're talking to brands that have, you know, a hashtag planned, you know, two years in advance and what value it's going to bring and how they're going to use it. And so, I mean, we, we immerse ourselves over here at Hook It in the campaign side of what it means, but we've also been able to like tell athletes that if you're going to use this time and effort to write out 15 hashtags, um, I would stop and figure out who is your best sponsor and which hashtag do they use, right? And use that so that you can be in the mix because as soon as you like bust yourself out of that world, it's just a free-for-all. And for the random customer that clicked the MTB hashtag, you know, like to my knowledge and, and really anyone else's, I, I just don't think that's the stronger lead as a, as a sponsored athlete. Right. Oh, yeah. To the brand. I mean, I don't think it's a bad idea or anything like that. It's not wrong, but you are kind of clouding up your deliveries when you do that. And, you know, we just try to say here to focus on the ones that are uh, supporting you the best and then roll it down from there. Um, I know that promoted post thing I was explaining earlier. I mean, I've heard quite a few opinions on like, just what does that mean? And you know, I've been breaking it down to simple terms. Like there's seven days in a week, right? And you have how many sponsors? I mean, say a pro athlete has, I don't know, seven to 10 sponsors. I mean, it, it's less about putting them all onto one post. Like I would be telling these athletes to do one sponsor per post per day or something like that. Because the flip side of that is as soon as a brand goes and peers into that data, they are going to be blown away at the value of those posts that only included their brand. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it's, not, it's not even close really. Yeah. So yeah. it's a lot of work for athletes, right? On top of training mm -hmm. and racing and everything that goes alongside that is, mm -hmm. I mean, just doing one social post a day, if you've really got to think about it to that level of detail mm -hmm. and you've got to work with your, all of your brands kind of, Mm -hmm. yeah media plans hashtag plans totally. marketing plans there's, there's a lot to it right there's a lot to it and you know i've uh i think there's definitely also two sides right i mean there's the athlete that wants to you know be self-promoting and and you know have the the energy and the and the mindset to just wake up and want to do that is one thing and then like you're saying is you know sort of fitting in line with uh the brands and deliveries and you know, really following the rules. It's 
where I've seen brands jump and step ahead of others is the ones that are preparing themselves with like documents and directions and clear like deliveries to their pro athletes prior to anything even starting like early in the year. Here's what we expect. Here's how to do it. Those that are kind of doing that side of things seem to be the ones that are shining right now because there's also another side that is like hands in the air. Oh, it's too much. I can't do it. And before they've even tried, you know, so I know what you're saying and it, it is a lot. And boy, if that's one thing I actually was able to kind of learn being alongside Aaron all these years is, you know, the pressure does not subside when racing goes away. It's almost like more, you know, like racing is kind of the easy part for these athletes. Sometimes they get to show up and do their thing, but man, as soon as they get home, it's like, okay, what are you going to post next? You know, um, I believe the point right now, as far as where I'm concerned and where hook it fits into all this is now we are measuring that like value and data behind those posts. And so to me, that's kind of the next level of progression is not just having this mindset that this is just too much work to do, but more like, here's what I need to do. Here's what would bring value. And that's going to be my plan. Um, yeah. Hopefully yeah, we can you, get closer to that. Yeah, for sure. Do you think it's um, like there's a, a fine line between, well, I'll rephrase it. it. I think it feels like this sort of stuff for it to work well needs to feel genuine. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's a fine line between an athlete being genuine on social media and still delivering everything they've been asked of by their sponsors. How do you see that that balance that equation is it does it get harder when there's more demands from brands for riders to be genuine and and do fans and a potential buyers effectively lose trust as things stray away from that yeah that genuine piece is is a is a hot word um in in my opinion and kind of what i'm seeing out there and i believe or i agree with you 100 percent, which is like how do you get it genuine post and and then how does it display it i mean i don't i don't def, I, first of all i don't have you know the the perfect answer there um what i think is is intriguing about social media is just how good it is at showing you what's real or not um and i only say that because and maybe you can agree with me but like i can go and look at athletes posts and it, i can feel when the athlete is trying too hard or they're, they're going, and it might be because I know the athlete a little bit better personally or something like that, but I don't know why, but it feels easy to see when an athlete's trying too hard, or it looks as though they are being forced to do it. Um, for those that don't feel like that. And, and when you are viewing their social, you are intrigued and you're not, um, those are the ones that we've seen here at hook it rank the highest in things like you get engagement and interactions on social. Um, so I know I didn't answer your question except for, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and I can use, I mean, there's, we've been tracking the social media, uh, interactions and engagement for athletes now for about seven years. And, um, a guy that sticks out in my mind is from the motocross world of Ken Roxon, but he's 
always been towards the top of our motocross, supercross um, rankings and scores for social media. But then, I mean, just in general, if you go look at Kenny's posts on his Instagram, they are genuine and real. I And, and I don't know how else to put that. Um, he decides that he wants to show you, you know, babysitting his uh, nephew. <laughs> But then he'll also turn around and win Anaheim one. And both of those posts are so believable from him. And because he's always done it that way. So I, I don't know where the genuine, you know, uh, notch is always there for folks, except for those that I've seen always be themselves on social have ended up being people don't ask that question on them. Yeah. It's, it's those that have just tried either too hard or, you know, did too much, or I don't know. Um, I do tell a lot of folks though, that that's the golden kind of like, if you can get your fans to genuinely believe you, that's the key. Um, and how you do that. I mean, that that's probably a, uh, another podcast in itself. I, sure, I know for sure. that's a heavy, heavy con- uh, subject there, but yeah. Um, but it's it's engagement that you guys are after, right? It's the correct. amount of interactions, likes, comments that posts are getting, rather yeah. than the total number of followers. Yeah, because engagement effectively is equals an opportunity to correct. sell in, in simple terms. Yeah, I mean, for us and the way. Uh, we use that word engagement is it's actually kind of like a power to weight ratio. We actually do look at how many followers you have compared to how many interactions, likes, comments you get on your content. And that power to weight ratio is our engagement rate. Okay. So, and we actually did that from day one. So that was initially the, I can remember the first couple of years that, Hook it was uh we still have it, but we produce a top 50 list from every sport in the world. And it was based on interactions. So I can remember like the, the motocross community, that that was our bread and butter. So soon as we went out and said, you know, okay, Ken Rockson's at the top, and then I don't know, like Ryan Dungey, you're number 20. And uh we got calls really quick from from agents and brands and even the pros themselves, right? That were like, hey, I have a million something followers and I should be number one. And and we had to like start from day one being like, okay, this is how we're going to do it. You know, we're going to show interactions because in our opinion, that was what you should have gone after. I mean, if a marketer could have like gotten a stat from the print magazines about how many slobber marks on the page, they would have bought that, right? Like... <laughs> And that's an interaction. <laughs> that's an eyeball. Yeah. That's a, so, I mean, that's the way we look at it anyways. Yeah. And so anyone can go on hookit.com and look at the rankings, can't they, for their chosen sport, if it's one they that can. you guys work in. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was looking times, at the mountain biking one the other day. It's yeah. quite interesting to see. Yeah. Times have gotten a little different since, you know, the, all the privacy online uh, laws and, and, you know, stuff with over here with, Trump and the Russians and all that mm-hmm. stuff, it has, you know, really clamped down any um, private data is like these social media sites in their back end APIs. They don't they don't offer anything anymore. Um, 
we luckily were early on a you know a contracted partner of Facebook's and Twitter and YouTube, but we have to follow their rules. And I specifically talking about Facebook. So any athlete in the world, LeBron James, Cristiano Ronaldo, anyone, if a brand wants to see their social data, they have to have a business Instagram account and Facebook. You no longer get personal data from anyone. Okay. So like that shift right there doesn't allow hook it now to go take, you know, Troy Brosnan's screen name and drop it into our data and be able to produce, you know, super accurate interaction numbers any longer. Um, we need like guys like Troy to be logged into their hook it account and connect them, their own accounts directly now. So, okay. That big step there. Luckily, we are working with, you know, Nike, Budweiser, Visa, Puma, New Balance, you know, these, and they've got the biggest athletes in the world. So we're really comfortable now saying that, but it took us a while to get to there to say, you know, you would have to connect on Hook It. I mean, we were just a third party at that point. But now I think our data is so rock solid and for what, for what the purpose is you know, and the data that we're producing, I mean, it's, it's gold. So, yeah. So ev everyone you see in that list of the rankings is like they're registered with hook it. Is that fair? They, they can be. Yeah. And then a lot of times it was an old account that we knew we had to have that particular pro listed and ranked. And it does not mean that they are logged into hook it or even maybe, you know, have a knowledge of having a hook it account at some point though, we would have grabbed every pro from every sport and put them into our system. And then since then, it would be more of individually based or brand based, you know, so like okay. Nike came in and made, I forget how many sponsored pro athletes they have. I think it's in the neighborhood of like 250 or something, but like every one of those 250 athletes is connected through hook it. Right. Because we had yeah. to, to get their data. Yeah. But and any, am I right in thinking that anyone can kind of sign up and yeah. get some level of analytics from it? They can. Yeah. In fact, they can even see things like, you know, your monthly or daily interactions per platform for free. And uh, I thought that was one of the coolest parts, because remember, I'm still managing the legacy side of the business. And often I'm, you know, every day uh, immersed in the, the grassroots side of these sports. Right. And the grassroots athletes. And, you know, I'm getting like 10, 11, 12 year old kids um, actually saying to me that hey i'm uh i'm i'm doing my promoted post this year and each time i do it my interactions are going up for this brand i'm sponsored by and i'm like wow that is such a big step for you you know that kid yeah. is not going to go to the next brand and say hey bro i got 5000 followers sponsor me they're not going to do it they're going to do what i think is close to fundamental right is like hey i'm going to do work for you Hopefully I keep getting, you know, more people to look at it, which means you might sell more. I mean, it's nice to hear a grassroots athlete come up with that these days, uh, <laughs> which is a far cry from what I remember 20 years ago, listening in to some kid tell me what sponsorship is, you know, like <laughs> it was scary uh, sometimes. <laughs> so, but anyways, you're right. I, uh, for the simple term of like actually showing every athlete some of this data to me it was helping um 
granted it wasn't always the smoothest delivery and you know to be able to like talk about this fluently with someone isn't the easiest either um but to just simply go out there and say something that you know hey i have this many interactions on my post we felt as a company that that was a much better representation of that athlete so yeah yeah okay what what are your thoughts on the money that's kind of going outside of racing it feels like there's been a a growth in that so money going to influencers youtube channels that kind of stuff and and i guess mm-hmm. you know the lack of racing over the last 12 months and the yeah the threat of of disrupted racing this year is still very real i think yeah what, what do you think about that? do you think do you think there's a, a real threat to racing because brands money's going elsewhere mm. i I didn't think of it like that. I think I thought of it more how you mentioned just the sign of the times. Um, I mean, these brands had had to make business decisions, you know, and with it not being able to be made on racing, I think the logical next step is, you know, where can we pull in digital value? Uh, we can't get out of our town, you know, <laughs> we can't leave. Where can we grab some of this digital value? And I think that's probably, in my opinion, you know, where the where the increases happen here, but I don't, I don't agree that, or I don't believe that it's a, it's a worry Um, because if anything, and this is maybe just my side is I feel like people right now are so ready to race and so ready to get out there that I think it's going to feel great. You know, once we're back out there, that's just kind of the way I look at it. But um, so, yeah, I haven't really felt like racing has lost any steam, but I certainly understand that, in order to, for these brands and even the athletes, right. To, to see and get some value during these times, it was going to have to be on digital. So, and yeah, I was, believe me, I was hearing the same kind of talk, right. I was, I was still at the time helping Aaron's money side. Right. So brands were (laughs) quickly having opinions about this pandemic and things of that nature. So, you know, they were also asking the athletes to do more digitally yeah so but beyond i guess beyond that like money the there's a pot of money that is finite and it gets divvied up between various marketing activities and it it feels like maybe less of that pot of money is going to racing because Mm -hmm. there's other attractive ways to spend it influences Mm -hmm. youtube is this side of things and yeah it, it, it seems to be showing now i mean there's a few pretty fast races that were on good teams that have been left without deals coming into 2021 do you do you see it getting harder for athletes to access the pot of money in the bike industry do you think Mm. and i guess maybe four cross is an example right where they've struggled for industry sponsorship since it was dropped by the uci and that's led to a lot of the riders looking outside the industry for support do you think we'll we'll have to see more of that in downhill and enduro? I do. Um, I kind of see how you framed the question now. I maybe didn't answer that perfectly because I do. I think what's going to have to happen is maybe some stuff we touched on earlier is that the the athlete racer is going to have to do more. Um, and you cannot any longer just rely on showing up at a World Cup or EWS and well, I shouldn't say if you win, you know, if someone shows up and wins, usually you're going to do all right for a bit, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to be looked after. But I really think these days it, it it's a combination package. 
you know, you, you're definitely going to have to be on your game to, to be ready to race. But I think really you're going to have to compete against the digital world, you know, and I, I just don't feel yet that the digital world or the YouTube influencer is, is necessarily stepping in front. But I also know that, you know, brands are going to be continuing to make data minded decisions. And if that influencer is selling more product, it's not a bad decision on their side. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. if the data shows it and it's the business and the lights are staying on because Mr. Influencer is talking about it on his YouTube channel, I think they'll turn off the racing real quick. Um, and that's not to say that we don't love racing and, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of racing and I'd love every racer to get every dollar and penny they deserve, but I just don't think that's the way of the world right now. So, yeah. So do you think mountain biking or, or riders need to start looking at picking up external sponsorship? Do you think that's Yeah. Or, or, or look to, um, diversify you know, who they're currently sponsored by and, and bring value outside of the norm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, because I think it's a bit of a tough task to just drop everything and look outside right away because there's a job and even getting the interest and even, you know, pulling in uh, brands that maybe will have an interest and maybe we'll look at, it. I think at this point I would be focused on, you know, still the industry side but what can you do to uh, diversify yourself, you know, show value that's not just in racing or maybe in a better point would be not just in influencing or, you know, not just in digital. Because to me, I've noticed that athletes who do have a portfolio, right, that they're comfortable doing both um, are the ones gaining and getting the most support right now. So, yeah. you know, it's tough because I think, I don't want to call it, it was easy when you were just super fast back in the day, but, uh, (laughs) there was an element there where, you know, if that's all you did and I don't want to be like judgmental here, but to be pretty honest, that's where Aaron was early on, you know, like Aaron wasn't, you know, jumping up on the mic in the middle of a world cup party and getting, you know, everyone to talk about that for two weeks. Right. Like he wasn't showing up like rat boy with, you know, black eyes from the party night, the the weekend yeah, before, yeah. anything like that. I mean, literally all he did was win and he got taken care of. But like I mentioned, you know, kind of seeing the other side of that is okay. Then he went and won, but man, watch what happens now when that, when he got second or third, it was like, you know, end of the world sometimes. And so I, I really think the the athletes with the full package and, you know, those that are almost like, you know, dropping down their guard a little bit and, and maybe not so abrasive about having to do all this. Uh, seems like the ones that are, you know, it's definitely getting the support right now. Um, yeah. Who would you give as examples then of, of athletes that are doing it well? Like who should people be looking to hmm. as, as good examples? That's a good question. Um, I think. Um, I've been sort of looking at the whole entire breadth of athletes from the, you know, the tippy tops of the racing crew, like the Loic Brunies and, uh, and the Gwinner and the Gwinnies. But, you know, I see a kid like Remy Matier, right. From who's living out in Whistler right now. I know he just, I think he's 
just dropped his cube deal, but like he's a guy that is predominantly just uh, uh, content, right? He doesn't, it's not racing. I know he had gone and done uh, rampages and, you know, that side of things, but he's an athlete that I noticed that has doing a good job on the social media side. Um, uh-huh. uh, who else? Older guy that um, I've always had a lot of respect for over here in the States is uh, Kurt Voorhees. Yeah. Um, Kurt, although he had a great racing career, has gone on to extend his career with just, I thought, a great social following and a social delivery on stuff he does. Um, he's remained, you know, in the limelight in some form or fashion. And so I thought he's done a great job. Um but you know what, man? I just don't think there's that many rules out there to really just put your stamp on the the you know the stereotypical way to do it. Because, I mean, gosh, I mean, look at the characters we have in our sport. You know, look at Steve Pete compared to Aaron Gwynn. You know, like two completely different individuals that both are ultra success- successful. So, I like the diversity side of things myself. Yeah, no, it's great. I think the sport would be uh, would be worse off without it it's a it's a big part of it i think yeah yeah a lot of characters. definitely so what what advice would you give then to people that are looking to to work with brands to pick up sponsorship be that as an athlete an influencer a youtuber yeah. how should people be thinking about it and approaching that great question um uh, do, first thing i would say is don't miss fundamentals uh, and those are the simple stuff. Be an approachable athlete. Know the products that you are supported by. Um, but the advice I have, you know, is is actually just to to take on a data mindset going forward and realize that logos on jerseys and bikes and products are there to sell them. And you going and racing and winning a race means that you're gonna hopefully sell bikes. You going and doing a post on Instagram, hopefully means you're going to sell gloves. And as long as I think athletes have a business mindset behind their programs, to me seems like one of the best pieces of advice. Not only did I get myself, but looking out there today, because I think we just sat and talked about the job at hand. It's not easy, you know, and it's not something that if you did just go out and only focus on racing and winning, what happens when you don't win? You know, is there is the career over? So my advice would be to, you know, tick off all the boxes fundamentally and, and be a sponsible, approachable, good individual. But then, you know, don't be afraid to do the work that's basically needed these days on on the digital side. And, you know, I think uh, if you're able to kind of take on all those jobs at once and then still produce um, again, those are who I'm seeing make it, you know, with the support. So do you think you need to kind of do everything? Do you need to be on all the social channels? Do you need a YouTube mm. channel? Do you need to be racing or could you just like excel in like a few of those? Yeah. Good question. Um, as far as data goes, of course, Instagram is by far the number one social platform for athletes today. So, I mean, if we're, if we're really going down the line, it, it's going to go, you know, as far as numbers and, uh, everything included. It it goes Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, 
as far as doing all of them, and and then of course your your question about YouTube, I don't think YouTube makes a lot of sense until you're in the neighborhood of like five thousand subscribers, okay. and that um, you know if you can if you can look at the the view counts, I know that there's some ratios out there, but um, I've even had a few agreements past my desk that were in the neighborhood of like up until a hundred thousand YouTube views, they weren't gonna really pay anything. Okay. So YouTube kind of has a sense of like you either, you know, break in as a big entity or don't really focus on it and mm -hmm. and switch what you might put video wise in a YouTube launch and do it in an Instagram story or an Instagram reel. Because I do think that the uh, the chance to get both clicks and interactions is probably higher on an Instagram for those okay. lower level athletes. Um, yeah. Once you've made it up into, you know, let's just use some levels, but like call it Gwen or a Brosnan or Bruni, I think you are going to do yourself a favor having, you know, entities on all the major platforms. And that would mean the four in my mind are YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Facebook. Um, as far as I mean, we could probably sit and talk about each of those and you know all of it, but you know the the idea is is that if you can both do your race program, be on the social media sites, and then post natively to each platform, um, that is your best shot at getting value per platform, and then you know individually to yourself. And I know that's kind of like a uh, a jumbled up answer as far as the native posts and things like that. But it's so often that we see athletes and individuals doing like the share where they, you know, go to Instagram and they put the post, but then they share that over to their Facebook and Twitter. And uh, that intuitively is never going to produce the same amount of interactions as if you would have stopped and posted it three different times. Um, because you should be tailoring the post differently for each platform or because the way the yeah. algorithms treat that? Both, both. Okay. Um, I mean, you can take something really simple like, um, like Instagram, the, the, uh, aspect ratio of the content should be more in that like four by three ratio square. Right. And, uh, you, or, uh, Facebook completely allows you to upload, you know, high res 16 by nine ratio videos. So if you go and try to, you know, produce a video for Facebook and then slap that onto your Instagram, you might've cut off logos on the far rights and lefts of the, of the content. Uh -huh. So like just that alone could be one thing, but more importantly, the, the platforms themselves would always reward you more if you use them exclusively. So you know, things like when you, you, uh, you put a at mention in your Instagram post and you share that over to Twitter. Well, if you go to Twitter, if you don't fix it, it's just a dormant, nothing piece of text. Yeah. Right. So how many athletes are actually doing that? Very, very little. They just do it once. Right. And then just set it and forget it. And so then they have Twitter and Facebook posts out there that don't look for nothing great. You know, they're not fixed. They're not, no app mentions are linked up on them. So it's kind of almost a waste. Um, but then to better your point, each platform has its own demographic as well. So like the fastest growing segment of Facebook is the 55 plus crowd. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and they consume content lots different than a 15 year old kid, which that's Instagram's sweet spot is the, you know, the 18 to 24 crew. Yeah. So not that the athletes going to really know, or we expect them to have those demographic differences, but the truth is, is they, uh, it's it's encouraged and it, the data shows us native posts get more interactions and value so yeah and, and i guess like you say from the data the database approach like people should be reviewing how they're getting on on each of these platforms looking at the data seeing sure. what works what doesn't improving mm-hmm. and continually look at that and i guess the the real metric they're looking for is is engagement right real metric is going to be engagement and it's not going to be long before, and I'm already hearing it, is does social sell? Does social sell? If I make a post, does it sell? That's the brands talking there. Mm-hmm. So what I think is coming down the pipeline is just that, like, okay, I made a post, but then having ways to track the commerce from it. So if the athlete, you know, is trying to sell a pair of gloves and they put a link in the post, and that link is tracked all the way through. That's what I think is next coming because uh, Instagram is already testing that with celebrities right now. And um, I don't know if you've noticed how like uh, some of these big time athletes are starting to now put hashtag SPON. Um, uh, I have this, seen that. Yeah. What does that that's, mean? That's a legality thing. Okay. Um, that is so that, you know, I'm trying to think of a funny funny uh, example so like the kardashians or something if they come on here and say you know ford ford cars are the best but they're getting you know paid by ferrari right that's false advertising at that celebrity level so instagram did not want to be liable for these celebrities out there you know promoting and selling products without it being a legit service so basically that's it's an indicator that that particular entity or sponsored, you know, famous person is supported and sponsored by that brand. And that's why they are posting that. So it's just more of a legal thing, but anyways, that that's the question I'm hearing most right now. And that's with my ears on the ground, listening into our data side and, you know, us producing all of this data around value for the athlete. I mean, of course, I think the logical question next is, okay, you know, is it selling? (laughs) Are the shoes moving? And my day job at Hook It is we track when and if these grassroots grassroots athletes are buying these products. That's my job at Hook It. So in a way, I'm already looking at ROI or, you know, return on investment on ambassador programs. And oftentimes the way that they use hook it on my side through this leg is, is they're actually, you know, sending messaging out to their grassroots athletes, ambassadors, telling them what hashtag to use and how to do social for them. So for myself, I'm, I feel like I'm like beating on the door really close to figuring out kind of where these sales trends are happening. And you know, I'm doing simple stuff on the work side here where, you know, when I'm talking about marketing or messaging, I'm using pro athletes on those messages. Why? Because pros sell. Yeah. And just that right there, I mean, that's a question that I hear quite a bit. You know, it does this athlete sell product, yada, yada, yada. And 
I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to just get closer and closer to that, that question, does social sell? Because uh, I clearly have data that, you know, you know, when an athlete is showing more engagement, more interactions, doing the post as the brand wishes, it's often that that brand can alloc- or can track that sales are up because of that relationship. Um, it's not like apples to apples or a direct dot, but um, certainly that seems to be the buzz right now. Interesting stuff. So let's just kind of try and summarize then for people that are looking to move into a sponsorship world. Like first place is to make sure that they're active on the key platforms and to be, I guess, mm-hmm. creating kind of a genuine uh, presence there that drives engagement and and measuring that and looking to improve it all the time and grow those followings then to be able to show that to brands and talk to them about how they've done that what they'd like to do for the brands and then i guess to follow through and and be aware of best practice to understand what the brands are trying to trying to accomplish in the years and then doing everything they can to to promote that in a good light in a genuine way and to use the technology in the right way i guess making sure they're using the app mentions the tags at the front of the posts is that kind of yeah reasonable summary of it i think that was very reasonable i mean i'd hire you from that statement right there but uh <laughs> Brilliant. how much do i get <laughs> uh, but you know and I, it is a lot i mean when you when you just sat and said that i mean you can stop and like look at it from the outside looking in and it sounds like a lot you know but you have to also remember that you know, a lot of what you just said, we are just doing as athletes that are in that world. You know, we get the product, we ride the product, we read about it. Whether or not we know how to talk to someone else is probably the part you need to learn, you know, and and get better at. But um, today, I I, want to say this is that, you know, it it has never been more important to be real and genuine. Um, And if it does mean that... (laughs) you know, uh, a customer calls into the brand and, and tells that brand that X pro, you know, educated them about the product. Um, that stuff still happens, you know, and not everything in the world is fake and, you know, is hiding behind a digital wall. Um, social media allows people to peer in at that level that is really, really personal. And there is an opportunity for these athletes to show that they're real people, but, um, you know, the, the goal and maybe the, the end, the end all be all here is to try to be as genuine as possible on social media, but then, you know, follow almost exactly how you laid that out there. I mean, tick off all the boxes. And if you're doing all that, then I think, you know, you can be as confident as you need to be jumping into a, a negotiation or asking a brand for support. I think if you're missing any of those, you need to assume someone's going to do it better than you. Um, And that's maybe the scary part is knowing as an athlete today that you have to go and, you know, have all those things checked off in order to, you know, move ahead. That could be kind of daunting if you haven't really tried yet, you know? So Mm -hmm. I understand that for sure. Yeah. And I guess like, it sounds like a huge amount of work and a lot of focus, but for some of the riders, even quite high up your list, uh, they will have done a lot of that right. without even really thinking about it. They've not right. been doing it because that's what they need to do for work. They've been doing it because they enjoy yeah. it and that's them and 
Like yep. it doesn't always have to sound as much like or feel as much like work as that sounds. That's that's a good point. I mean, it's like, and maybe that's some advice that I've given Aaron along the way is that you know you are gonna you know on Wednesday go do downhill runs and it is okay to take a picture of that and show everyone you know and before that might have been where you just didn't think about it you know and I think once both the athlete and and probably more important the fans get used to how that athlete is going to deliver their content that's when I think the engagement means something um we get asked this question a lot, like simple stuff like, oh, you know, how many times should I post on social media or what time of the day should I post on social media? And I do know that there's data out there that probably shows the general public on when they consume that. Right. But we usually say something along the lines of when are you going to promote when you're going to post your content? What day are you going to tell your fans you plan to post your content? Because that's really all it is, is if you can turn that around and say, here's how I am going to be on social media. And hey, fans, here's what you should expect from me. That's your job, in my opinion. It's not necessarily trying to fit into the buckets that are out there. Because, I mean, think about it. Every athlete's different. Every athlete probably has a different way of saying things, you know? So if you can make that come to light, I believe that's what people gravitate towards is once they see something real, they're intrigued and they want to know more, you know? And if, again, I know we're back to that little statement about when people are forcing it or not genuine, honestly, though, that's when people unfollow, you know, they don't want to see it again because you, they, they don't believe you anymore. And, uh, if you can you know hold on to that believability piece i think you're in a good you're in a good way nice one cool man super interesting stuff and uh i could ask a lot more questions but we're getting towards the end of our time so i'm going to okay. wrap up with uh our final four questions that we ask everybody all right the first of those if our listeners had 150 pounds which is about 200 us dollars to improve their performance on a bike what would you recommend they go spend it on Ooh. <laughs> uh 200 bucks that's what you said yeah yeah huh oh <laughs> any bike though huh yeah boy i'm gonna say and i i don't know if this is gonna make sense i'm gonna say focus on tires okay because well we know a bike needs the tires to roll but in my career that is something I did was like notice the difference between <laughs> like a sidewall that had a downhill casing and then maybe an XC tire and the difference in like rolling resistance and what it meant to put five more pounds of air in your tire than not. Right. And I don't know. So if it's 200 bucks, we know that tires are about, I don't know, 60, 70 bucks. So, uh, Yeah. Uh, a good pair of tires for the course you're going to race is probably something I'd suggest. <laughs> All right. That's, that's quite a popular one. It's a good answer. Like right. what, what's your go-to at the moment? Have you got, have you got like a set of tires that will be on your bike for most of the year? Yeah, I'm glad you said that because uh, I've been running uh Kenda tires for the last year and a half. And uh, Roger over there is, is a good guy. But uh, the last race I did out here in Southern California, 
um, in Vail Lake was right out here by me. I rode a 2.6 Regolith uh, tire, mm -hmm. Regolith Kendas, front and rear. And okay. uh, I have not taken those things off my, my new Proof Mega. They roll good. They're a big volume tire, but they do not ride like a big 2.6 tire. So for right now, okay. that's the one I'm running out here. Interesting. I have not seen those. I'll have to check them out. Check them out. Yeah. All right. Question number two. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice mm. would you give him? Whoa. Um, hmm. For me personally, and I've probably asked this one a lot, is uh, I I had an opportunity in, in my high school. That was when I was in high school. I had the choice of racing or going to play basketball in college. And uh, I chose the bike path. And uh, I, I had the time of my life. I thought I learned. But if I could go back, um, I would have chosen to look at the school a little bit more at that okay. time. So, yeah. But I, I'm not really crying over spilled milk, so it's not that big of a deal there. <laughs> it turned out all right, didn't it? Yeah, it did. <laughs> cool. Question three, if you could have a coaching session with anyone, past yeah. or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn from them? Um, I learned a lot from John Tomac when I rode for his factory program for three years, but I didn't learn everything. And uh, I'd go back and sponge up anything that guy has to say so interesting one of the yeah one of the very early legends of the sport so yeah i i picked up a lot of what i use today and everything from him personally so wow okay interesting stuff all right final question what is something that you do every day that you feel benefits you hmm i that's that's a good question. I don't want to use bikes. You know what? I get up and, and hug and kiss my my daughters and my family every morning. And I'm nice. I'm most proud of that. Nice. Yeah, that can never be a bad thing, can it? Nope. Nope. Love it. Good stuff, man. Well, it's been super interesting chatting and finding out more about your background, the history of your race career, and also chatting in depth about some of what's going on in the world of sponsorship and digital at the moment because it's uh it's fast changing fast evolving and it, it has a big bearing on our sport so yeah thanks for for taking some time to go through it if people want to find out more where's the best place for them to look i guess they can uh they can check out hookit.com right and have a look yeah. at the rankings and stuff check out hookit.com and yeah i mean i'll just use my instagram handle at bigs casa b-i-g-z-c-a-s-a Cool. And it's hookit, H-O-O-K-I-T, isn't it? Dot com. It is. It is. Yes. I'll put uh, links to the, that and to your Instagram in the show notes. Okay. Awesome. Thanks a lot for your time, Rich. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, take care. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. That's it for this episode with Rich. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. A massive thanks to Wheel One Composites for supporting this episode. If you want to save on their awesome wheels or their depackaged bar and stem, then as a downtime listener, you can get 15% off for the whole of January using the code 2021. Here we go at the checkout over on wheel1composites.com. That's 2021. Here we go, all lowercase or one word. Check out what they have to offer over at wheel1composites.com right now. 
All the links are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show and help support what we're doing, then you can grab yourself a t-shirt, a sweatshirt or a hoodie by heading over to downtimepodcast.com for slash shop. Please keep on spreading the word about the podcast, tell your riding mates and share the episodes on your social media. It all helps me keep this thing going. If you've got time as well, then a review on iTunes is super helpful too. All right, there's another awesome episode coming up soon, but until then, get out and ride. <laughs>